came across a, a book recently called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's by Tony Renke. And uh, one of the things that Renke writes in that book is that while our, our technology and our smartphones are certainly not all bad, they are not all good either. Uh, and their impact upon our lives, um, for instance, and perhaps only chiefly so, uh, our, our phones, these wonderful little devices, great and useful as they, they can be, have a sinister way of amplifying our addiction to distraction. Amplifying, we're already you know, distractible, but, but it's now amplifying our addiction to distraction. Three things in particular. One, um, distracting us from our work, right? Uh, we procrastinate in the face of the pressures that we feel in whatever venue of, of uh, calling and labor and occupation that we have. So we procrastinate, pushed off, check the phone, all that type of stuff. Um, that's certainly one area. Another area is uh, we are distracted in our relationships. Relationships, other people, it's messy. I don't want to deal with the conflict. I don't want to think about that. I want to push that off. You know, delay it, delay it, let procrastinate, take another hit, grab the phone. But chiefly speaking, uh, these sadly oftentimes often have a way of heightening up and spinning up our addiction, distraction, uh, to not thinking about eternal things. Uh, we will just put off uh, our questions, our concerns about life and meaning and direction, our doubts about the very existence or nature or presence of God in our lives, uh, the, our, our concerns, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our anger, just the deep-seated stuff. We will just put it off, put it off, put it off, grab the phone, take another hit. We're addicted. We're addicted to distraction. We all are, to some degree or, or not. Jesus is determined to get our attention. We are distracted. He is determined to get our attention. And He certainly does so in some profound ways in this text, if we will but have ears to hear. Matthew 12. If you've got a Bible with you, I would really encourage you to turn there now with me. Uh, that's the, the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Matthew 12, picking up where we were a couple weeks ago. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, we're picking up in verse 25, uh, 22, excuse me, picking up verse 22 and reading on down through verse 37. So Matthew 12 starting in verse 22 and reading on down through verse 37. Hear now the word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, I think we need to pray. So let's do that. Uh, Lord, we certainly do at any time we come to your word, uh, whether it is a text that is readily understandable and plain uh, as the words upon the page, or in cases like this where there are things that are perhaps not quite so plain. In any case, it's beyond just understanding of mind and an intellectual grasp it is also application of heart and change of direction and will and uh, plans, purposes, really trust. We have a worship problem. We confess that even from the, at the start as we come to the text, we have a worship problem. We are much more about ourselves than we are about you. And so we uh, submit that, admit that, and ask that you have mercy and give us eyes and ears with which to see and hear. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let me just got to dive in here. Okay, this, this, there's a lot about this passage that grabs your attention. Not the least of which is the miracle right at the start. Okay, so you have uh, this man whose physical suffering is alleviated by this spiritual emancipation that Jesus works in his life. Uh, he, Jesus drives out this demon, and as a consequence of that, now, it's not that the ancient peoples didn't understand. They just thought, you know, it's not that they thought all diseases were caused by demons and such foolishness as that. That's not what's going on here. It's just in this case, the presence of this demon in this man's life was causing blindness and muteness. And Jesus drives the demon out. Therein, now the man is free. He can see again. He can speak again. And it's a miracle indeed. That should get our attention. It certainly did the people. But that's actually what comes next. And it's not the miracle, the, the miracle as grand as it is, amazing as it is, is not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is actually the confrontation that comes after that. That's actually the, the main point of, of the text. The, the people, the crowds are understandably amazed by what they have witnessed here. And they're beginning to wonder, they're asking questions. Who is this really? Who is this And the Pharisees, recognizing how this is spinning things up and they're concerned about the direction that this could go, decide to check that and make this bold declaration as to actually what's going on. The reason he can cast, I'm paraphrasing, the reason he can cast out demons is because he's possessed by a demon. 
That's basically what they're saying. Note, by the way, no one's denying whether or not a miracle took place. You catch that? Uh, it's, it's how it took place. Which is interesting because if you go back and you look at Jewish opposition in the early centuries of the church, that's exactly the argument they were making in the second, third centuries. Uh, we, we have do- that, that documented. The, the, the Jewish antagonists to the, the Christian church were not arguing whether or not these miracles took place. They were arguing about how they took place. Very much the same you know, form that you see of argumentation here. Okay, so it's the rising tide of opposition to Jesus. How does he respond? How does Jesus respond to those who oppose him? Note that he does not obliterate them. It would be a short text if he did. Um, he does not obliterate them. He does not call down fire from on high, like I would, like maybe you would. Nor does he ignore them. Right? These are polar extremes. Nor does he ignore them and say, they're just not even worth my attention, not even worth the effort. Rather, he engages them. He instructs them. He appeals to them. Jesus speaks with clarity and compassion to those who oppose Him. He speaks with clarity and compassion to those who oppose Him. We need, as as everyone there on the scene did then, then, we still need to be weighing carefully what He's saying. We need to be weighing carefully what He is saying. We see three things, at least three things here we can learn and take away regarding opposition to Jesus. The first being that ultimately it is logically incoherent. This is in your outline. Logically incoherent. Secondly, it is utterly disastrous. And thirdly, it is verbally demonstrated. Opposition to Jesus. That's what some things we're learning here. Uh, as the, we see this rising tide here in Matthew 12. So first, some things that we're learning about opposition to Jesus and the Gospel. Ultimately, it's logically incoherent. That's the first thing. These are learned men. The Pharisees are not idiots. They're not imbeciles. These are trained men, well-schooled in the arts of debate, and yet Jesus has to expose their foolishness. Look at what he says in verses 25 through 27. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So the idea of what Jesus is saying is countering them, saying, look, if what you're saying is true, then Satan's is a divided kingdom suffering from a civil war which is ultimately self-destructive. Satan may be evil, but he is not stupid. That's the first argument. It can't be. What you're saying simply cannot be. He presses on regarding their own practice. Their sons. That's another way of saying their followers. Their disciples of of the Pharisees. Their followers. Their disciples. It's documented. We know this. That there were practices in which they themselves were attempting to try and cast out demons. Apparently, to some degree, having some manner of success, it would seem. And Jesus is saying, okay, fine. You accuse me of doing what I'm doing by the power of Satan. Well, by whose power are they doing what they're doing? Be consistent, is what he's saying. You're being logically incoherent. So he's exposing their foolishness, and now having cleared the ground, 
He then moves in to explain reality. And we pick that up in verse 28. Here's what's going on. But if it, is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is speaking here. He's explaining, look, this, this is the dawning of the kingdom. What I'm doing could only be done by the power of the Spirit of God working in and through me. This is the dawning of the kingdom, the, the, the sign of the coming of the kingdom, the presence, power, the rule and reign of God on this earth. And that is what this miracle is a sign of. Or put it another way, he tells kind of a little mini parable there regarding the binding of a strong man. Well, that's exactly what Jesus has done. That has to be what he has done in order for this to have happened. The strong man being Satan, the devil. Jesus has restrained him. He has not come to collude with him, but to overpower him. And hence, that's how it is that he is able to do what he is, what he is doing there. So, he's saying, look, ultimately, that your opposition to me is logically incoherent. It is logically incoherent. Now, I just want to say a couple things regarding this, just for time's sake. First, there is still a strong man at work in this world. The strong man that Jesus is referring to, Satan, who still yet holds his plunder tight to his chest. Countless who are victims of his work of deception in their lives and therein who stand opposed to the gospel and to Jesus still today. And that is because of the work of the strong man. Um, the problem, ultimately, is never a lack of evidence. Ultimately, it is never a lack of evidence. You see that right here with the Pharisees. They saw what they saw, but they refused to believe. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is, is that the mind follows the heart. So if a person has determined that I will not believe, there is a sense in which we can say they will not believe. And so I would appeal to you this morning, if that's where you are, I would appeal to you to re-examine your stance, to question your convictions, to re-evaluate your position. Because Jesus, Son of the living God, God in the flesh, is speaking to you now with clarity and compassion, and we need to weigh what it is that He is saying. That's the first thing that we see here in this passage. The second follows right on with it. Not only is opposition to him ultimately logically incoherent, it is in the end truly, utterly disastrous. And he speaks to this quite powerfully. Verses 30 through 32, picking up where we left off. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is a strong challenge that Jesus is laying down here. Note the authority he assumes about himself. 
the gauntlet that he's just throwing down right there on the table before us. The strong challenge. He is saying there's no middle ground here. Now, in many aspects of life, many arenas of life, compromise is a good thing. Finding a way to, you know, pick, you take a little bit and I take a little bit, we'll drive down this middle lane and that, that's the way. Not here. Not here. There's no middle ground. Jesus demands a necessity of choice. He said, it is with me, you must pick your sides. With me, you must make a decision. This is really bold, what he is saying and how he is, is saying it. He makes, throws down this strong challenge and then follows that with a stern warning, which of course is why the strong challenge is coming, right? The stern warning. He makes a distinction between kinds of blasphemy. There's been a lot of ink spilled over this over the course of the years. I'm just trying to try and boil it down for us here quickly. Um, a, a, a blasphemy against the Son, which is an initial rejection of Jesus and the Gospel. Now that can be forgiven. You can go back on that, right? But, but to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is not an initial rejection. That is a final, ultimate rejection of Jesus and the Gospel in a decisive, willful way. And that leaves you no hope at all. Let me read you this quote from Dan Doriani and his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. It's very, very helpful. There's another quote there by D.A. Carson in your quotes and notes. Read that later. Don't read it now. It's very good. But let me just read you what, what uh, Doriani has to say on this same text. Uh, Blasphemy against the Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as the very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony to him. This blasphemer has heard the gospel proclaimed with clarity and power. He has watched Christians live good lives, yet he hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. He hears, understands, and despises. We see why this sin is unpardonable. How can one turn to Christ and be saved when he's seen all the evidence and rejected it as a terrible evil. Now let me press into this just from a pastoral sense, moving away from you know commentary, just you know where we are, you know Monday morning, that that sort of thing. Jesus, I mean, he is certainly saying in a very strong way, opposing him is is utterly disastrous. But know this: a Christian cannot commit this sin. It is categorically impossible because of God's preserving grace in their lives. It is impossible for a Christian to commit this sin. In fact, let me go so far as to say this. A non-Christian who is asking that question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? By default, has not because of the very fact that they're sensitive to the question. They're wrestling with it, which indicates a, a softness of heart, at least to some degree, to Jesus and the Gospel. The, 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 a marker of this sort of sin is a pungent pride, an arrogant smugness, a, a settled self-satisfaction. Put it this way, just coming out from another angle. If you're worried about having committed it, you're, you haven't. 
You're far from it. If you're concerned about having committed this sin, in fact, I'm going to turn it, do a little jujitsu on you now. In fact, if you're worried as to whether or not you've committed it, it's quite likely a sign of the Spirit's work in your life in the process of softening your poor heart. So rejoice that you're wondering. <laughs> As to whether or not you don't don't stay up late at night wondering, rejoice and press in further because of what may well be going on in your life in this season. Jesus is speaking here with such clarity, such compassion to his opponents. Do you see how we then need to weigh carefully what he is saying to us? Which then leads to the third thing. Not only is he making it very clear. That opposition to him ultimately makes no sense. And not only is he making clear that opposition to him, the stakes are beyond saying hi, there are in fact those signs and symptoms that we can be aware of and wary of as to whether or not what our stance is. And he tells us what those signs and indications, symptoms might be. Uh, picking up verse 33. Either... Make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What's going on here? He uses a, a common image here to make a very uh, make a simple analogy, a simple point. You know a tree by its fruit. So if you've got good tree, good fruit, you've got a good tree. If you've got bad fruit, you've got a bad tree. Now that simple analogy leads to a sobering thought that what we are is revealed in what we do and what we say. Indeed, even in our incidental and offhand remarks. In fact, I would go so far as to say not just even in our incidental and offhand remarks, but especially in our uh, incidental and offhand remarks because those are the ones we haven't prepared. Those are oftentimes the real snapshot of what's going on down deep in us. So when you think about that, what he's saying here, how, how, how what we are is, is revealed and exposed by what we say, Oh my goodness, if we're honest then, that then shows us this common image is opening us up to a dire need. Jesus speaks here of the certainty of a future judgment grounded in, the, in God's holiness. It has become His justice. The basis of which is our nature. Our, put another way, looking at this passage, our stance towards Him. How we regard Him, which is revealed in our words about Him. You see? So how we are going to be assessed is based on our stance towards Him, which is exposed by our words about Him. Again, uh, he's saying that this opposition is something to take very seriously. It can be ver verbally demonstrated. I want to be clear, though, in this. Make sure no, we don't under misunderstand. Nobody misunderstands this point. Jesus is not talking here about salvation by works. He's not saying that we are secure and safe and are standing before God based on holy words and righteous actions. If that was the case, the Pharisees would be fine. 
They had that down to a science. He's not talking about pretending and presumptuous and presumption and, and just putting on airs. Again, he's talking about how our words and our actions betray and expose our nature, our hearts, our stance before him, to him. Which then you really think about our speech. Shows us our need is profound. We are great sinners. I am, you are, we are. Great sinners. But praise God we have a great Savior. The one who's speaking these words. Again, we need to carefully, carefully, oh so carefully, weigh what he, this great Savior, is saying to us. Let me wrap this up. Okay, so I said earlier this text, it certainly does have a way of grabbing our attention, not just because of what he does, miracle, but what he says is a consequence of the confrontation and all of that. But I think there's another reason this text has a way of, of getting under our skin and grabbing our attention, and that is the confusion that we bring to it. We come to passages like this with certain categories. And this, passages like this have a way of challenging, if not blowing up our categories. And I'm thinking in particular of this. We are very confused, as 21st century Westerners, about the difference between niceness and love. Jesus is not nice. He's just not. Niceness is a caricature of love. Niceness is a cheap jack copy of love, a downgraded version of love. Love has a way of being hard and tenacious. Love is willing to say no and stop and warn. Love does not let go where one ought not to go. And I can think of countless examples of how to illustrate that point, but I hope you under, we understand that simple truism. Jesus clearly is not being nice. And we should be very thankful and relieved that He's not. He loves us too much to be nice. He loves us so much He's willing to speak clearly and compassionately, even into the face of opposition, that we would hear. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we ask that You'd clear up our fuzzy thinking on these things. You do speak strongly. Uh, we ask that You would, despite maybe our experience with people in our lives who speak strongly, though not to confuse that with You and how You do that, confusing that somehow with being a, a merciless or unkind, undevoted towards our better, our good, unconcerned, oh goodness, it's all the opposite. Your willingness to challenge us in these ways. We ask that You would clear up our fuzzy thinking, soften our hearts, change our wills. May we, like the crowds that day, be amazed, but go beyond amazement to conviction and trust. We ask these things in Your name. Amen.